Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. 25. I have up here 28 pages of notes and a message that uh, is at least an hour in length. And I fully intend to preach that message someday, <laughs> but not today. This morning you'll get the Reader's Digest version of a text that I've entitled, A Savior for All Nations. Do Southern Baptists really get it? Mark chapter 11, verse 12, and reading through verse 25. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and, and, and note how the conjunction and just uh, resounds again and again and again as Mark in his very vivid style just tells you exactly what happened. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, and those who brought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against another, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." Southern Baptists are an interesting and fascinating people. I think anyone would agree with that, whether they're in the family or not. And like most Christian denominations, and maybe even with a little bit more passion and zeal, we love controversy and we thrive on a fight. Don't expect us ever to run from one. I've learned this in my own lifetime with what was called the conservative resurgence, a fight that I think had to happen. Again, with the uh, Great Commission resurgence, again, an issue that I think needed to go forward. And now we're going to debate whether or not we should change our name and get ready. People already rolling up their sleeves and putting on their boxing gloves. A name change. Uh, is it something that we should do? Again, well, I think we should at least study it. I think there's nothing wrong with examining the issue. 
Should we change our name? That's a bit more complicated, though personally I would favor it happening if that were to be the recommendation from the committee. But this much I do know. Whether we change our name or not, Southern Baptists are in a desperate need of a heart change. We do need a transformation of our heart. We need a transformation on the inside that will result in a transformation on the outside so that in particular the church on earth will begin to look more and more like the church in heaven. That we really would reflect the truth in our Southern Baptist churches that indeed we have a Savior for all the nations. The fact of the matter is, at this particular moment, Southern Baptists are still a mostly middle class, mostly white network of mostly declining churches in the southern United States of America. Those are the undeniable facts. And brothers and sisters, if that does not change, we will die. We will not have a long-term future. And it will not only be because we fail to do what we ought to do. I believe it will be because God will judge us. And He will judge us rightly for hiding the truth that He is indeed a Savior for all nations. It is well said, if the arms of God's people do not reach around the world, then their arms are too short. And this particular text informs us that that was the malady, that was the sin that had afflicted the nation of Israel, and in particular, the leadership of the temple. And as a result, God judged them, and He judged them most severely. Now, if we're to understand this text rightly and apply it rightly, we have to have a correct, what I call, temple theology of the Bible. Let me explain that very quickly. God once had a physical temple. It was located in the city of Jerusalem. But today he has a perfect temple that's now located in heaven. That temple's name is Jesus, as he made clear himself in John chapter 2, verse 18 through verse 22. God did have a temple one time of a physical nature in Jerusalem, but today he has a spiritual temple called the church, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. And yes, God once had a physical temple in Jerusalem, but today he has a personal temple scattered all around the world and all throughout the nations as a witness to himself. That temple is you. That temple is me. That temple is anyone who understands that they are not their own, but they have been bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Passover lamb without blemish or spot. We are today the temple of God that is to be a reflection of the truth that He is indeed a God and a Savior for all the nations. The context of this passage is pretty clear. Jesus has gone into Jerusalem in what is called the triumphal entry. Uh, toward the end of the day, He goes to uh, the temple. He looks around, and because it's late, He goes home. But He doesn't like what He sees, and that will become very, very evident in what follows in verses 15 through 19. Now, because I want to make sure you see the big picture uh, when we get out of time and I stop, let me just tell you the three truths I think that are clearly revealed in this text of Scripture. First of all, in verses 12 through 14, Jesus will curse those who put on a show but do not produce. He will curse those who put on a show but do not produce. Secondly, in verses 15 through 19, He will condemn that which promises one thing but delivers another. 
He will condemn that which promises one thing and delivers another. And then finally, if we get there in verses 20 through 25, he will challenge us to believe in God, but knows that doubt is an ever-present danger. He will challenge us, believe in God, but he knows that doubt is an ever-present danger. So to our text, verse 12, on the following day, this is after he had gone to Bethany where he was staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his close friends. On the following day, as they came from Bethany, uh, he was hungry. Uh, Evidently, Jesus had skipped breakfast that morning. And so seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And so he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. Now, this particular miracle, it is the only miracle of death in the Bible, excluding uh, Jesus casting the demons into the pigs that go off into the sea and are drowned. It is his last miracle, by the way, in the Gospel of Mark before he will be raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus uh, curses a, a fig tree, and this has caused all sorts of consternation with a number of different persons. In fact, I've got three or four quotes here. I'll just give you the one from T.W. Manson who said, quote, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully extended and expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. William Barclay said Jesus seemed to be guilty of pugilance in the way that he treated this tree, but they miss it. He's not a sport brat. Uh, He's not doing what he does out of anger or malice. He's not having a temper tantrum. No, it's an object lesson. It is actually what could be called an acted out parable that will then be made evident in his dealing with the temple and the religious leaders. In other words, what this is going to help us understand is this. God does not like that which puts on a show but does not produce. It says there in the text that the fig tree was in leaf, but when he got there, he found nothing on it. It was not the season for figs. Well, here's what's going on. It isn't the season. All the other fig trees are barren, but this one has leaves on it, and thereby it would indicate, come to me. Whereas these others are are void and, and vacuous and empty and have not produced anything, I have something for you. And so Jesus goes to it, but when he gets there, he finds out, though it promised one thing, it actually delivered nothing. It was a hypocritical, if you like, fig tree. It it deceived. It said, come on. And when you get there, you find out there is nothing there. That is exactly what the temple had become. It was an incredible facility. It was an unbelievable edifice. And yet when you got there, you found out it was bankrupt in terms of his ability to lead you to God. We learn from the text that Gentiles were denied access to God, being restricted to the the court of the Gentiles. By the way, I went back and looked. That's not in the Bible. When God founded his temple, he did not, and when God built his temple, he did not exclude the Gentiles. That was something that developed later in Judaism. So Gentiles are excluded because uh, they're not of the right race. Uh, They're not of the right uh, ethnicity. 
Beyond that, you had the poor being exploited by the money changers and those who sold the sacrificial animals, and so they were being abused as well. So yes, it looked good, it looked great, but actually it was empty. Uh, Actually, it had nothing there. Once a beacon of light, it was now at best just a small, small flicker. And here's my question. If God would destroy His temple... If God would destroy his nation, what would make us think that he would not likewise deal with us if we also become deceptive and unfruitful? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all bear leaves, but they do not produce fruit. In other words, leaves are good at boasting but they don't deliver. Let's apply that to our convention of churches. I I grow weary of hearing people say things like, oh, Southern Baptists may not be much, but we are the best God has. Really? Really? And even if that were true, you're that arrogant to say that? Or we may be in decline... But at least we're not losing ground like the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Methodists, and the Presbyterians. Or don't forget, we are the largest Protestant denomination in America with the largest missionary force in the world. And don't mind asking, we'll be glad to tell you again and again and again and again. Don't mind the fact that we're in decline there as well in terms of financial support, in terms of total numbers, and especially in terms of the number of men that are on the field. No, uh, hypocrisy almost always equals self-deception. We think we are one thing when actually we are another, and our Savior curses hypocrisy. He also curses unfruitfulness. It says there in verse 13, he saw a fig tree. The fig tree uh, is often used in the Old Testament as a figure for the nation of Israel. I would direct you later to go and read chapter 8 where this very statement of the fig tree that you find later is found. And I think actually what you have taking place here in uh, this account in Mark is the fulfillment of a brutal prophecy that is uttered against the nation and its leaders. And so Jesus sees the tree. There's nothing on it. And so in verse 14, he says a remarkable thing. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This this is not mythological. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a legend. There are eyewitnesses there who saw it. And as we see in verse 21, Peter clearly remembered the very next day exactly what the Lord had said. Here's the point. Fruitlessness now may indeed result in fruitlessness forever. Lose your usefulness for Jesus and he may curse you and move on. So he can't do that. He can do anything he wants to. He's God. And who are you to set conditions on what God may choose to do in you, in your church, or in a convention of churches? After all, don't ever forget the fact we need him. He does not need us. Southern Baptists would do well to recognize as a convention of churches, God does not need us. God will accomplish His wonderful, glorious ends for His glory, not ours, whether we are a part of it or not. No, we need Him to save us, and we need Him to make us useful and fruitful. And when we turn our churches 
into nothing more than religious clubs of idolatry, hypocrisy, and unfruitfulness. We will not receive the blessing of God, but we will receive the curse of God. Recently, I became aware of the fact that some things still haven't changed. I discovered that we were sending out uh, students to speak in churches. People would call and ask for us to send out students to preach in their churches. But they began, I found out, uh, and evidently been going on for some time, they would make a, a, a particular request, and that would be that the person be of the same color as most of us in this room today, that you have white pigmentation in terms of your skin color. And in fact, we have one particular student who graduated who was good enough to be the interim pastor of a church for over a year, but he wasn't good enough to be their permanent pastor because of the color of his skin. It brought back to me a memory that I still remember very distinctly when I was here the first time in 1992 to 96 as the dean of students. Uh, I had a student come and see me one day, and he informed me that he had been terminated from his church just a few days earlier. I said, well, what was the reason uh, for which they fired you? He said, well, uh, Dr. Aiken, we had vacation Bible school uh, early in, in the spring, and uh, we invited all the folks in the neighborhood to come, and uh, there were some black children who came. And when we shared the gospel, uh, they prayed to receive Christ. And we told all the children that had prayed to receive Christ that the next Sunday we would encourage them to come to church and to make public their profession of faith. And so the next Sunday, not only did the children come, but their parents came, and they walked down the aisle. And after the service, the deacons had an emergency meeting, and they fired me because they told me niggers are not allowed to join that church. In God's amazing grace, I got a phone call from that church about a month later. And the voice on the other end said, uh, uh, Dr. Aiken, uh, we're looking for a pastor, and uh, we thought that you might be able to make a recommendation. And if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. My hand is on the Bible. I said, oh, no, you, you don't need a pastor. You've got a pastor. And they said, no, no, we, we, we recently lost our pastor. I said, no, you recently fired a fine young man simply because he invited a black family to come and be a part of your church. But the fact of the matter is, you have a pastor, and his name is Satan. And I said, I would not recommend a dog to be your pastor because you're not a church. You're a carnal religious club that the Spirit left many, many years ago. Don't call our school anymore. We're not interested in helping serve people like you. And I want to be clear, we're not interested in helping serve people like that. We're not going to be a part of besmirching and crucifying the gospel by denying that certain people should have ready access to that gospel and to the temple of God, which is the church of God, any place, anywhere, anytime. It is amazing to me that we'll give thousands of dollars to send missionaries around the world to reach people of different ethnicity and different color, but we won't invite them into our own churches. And I'm telling you, God will never, ever, 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 ever bless Southern Baptists as He could and would until we get that particular issue straight. And God will curse those who put on a show, but do not produce. Secondly, God will condemn that which promises one thing but delivers another 
On September the 6th, 1520, Martin Luther wrote an open letter to the Pope, Pope Leo X, and he wrote, and I quote, The Roman Church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. I love Luther. People pick at me about, well, we never doubt where you stand. Well, I mean, Luther, oh my goodness, there's no question at all what he believes at any point in time in his life. Well, Luther's statement, though applied to the Roman church of his day, could have easily been applied to the temple in Jesus' day. Now, most of us know that John's gospel has a cleansing uh, <clears throat> early. The synoptics have their cleansing later. I happen to believe that there were two cleansings of the temple. One uh, early in our Lord's ministry, recorded in John chapter 2, and then a second one later in his ministry that we see here in Mark 11, also in Matthew chapter 21 and Luke 19. What you now have is the parable of the cursing of the fig tree acted out as our Lord condemns what is called a den of robbers or, if you like, a beehive of spiritual thieves. He says, I will condemn that which promises one thing and delivers another. He came to Jerusalem. Of course, it's Passover time. Oh, we could say so much about Passover. The population would swell to ten times its normal population. There were no hotels, so uh, friends and family and fields were where you would take uh, residence during this particular time of, uh, of worship. Uh, it is also said that the money changers uh, and uh, those that would sell the animals, the money changers would jack up the exchange rate. Think of an airport uh, money exchange place on steroids. And then as far as the animals, it is said that sometimes the markup was 16 times that of the normal price. A pigeon, for example, that would go in our economy for 25 cents, now they sold it for $4. And so Jesus comes in and he sees all of this religious corruption and he absolutely goes ballistic. It says there in verse 15, he came, he entered the temple and he began immediately to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And evidently, we're not certain, but some people believe that there had developed a, a shortcut through uh, the temple square. People did not want to walk all the way around the temple. By the way, it is said that it was at least 35 acres in total proximity. And so they would go through it rather than around it. Well, he stopped that too. And we would not allow anyone to carry through anything uh, of the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, and here he is going to bring together both Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, a word of commendation. And then Jeremiah 7, 11, a word of condemnation. He was teaching them, saying, Isn't it not written, Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and only Mark has this phrase, for all the nations. But you have made it, quoting Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, a den of thieves. And our Lord, in the strongest possible language, condemns them. And in the strongest possible action, gets after them as well for taking His house and making it a sham, making it something that did not bring people to God, but rather now it is something that is keeping people from God. In fact, it was popularly believed in Jewish writings in the intertestamental period that when the, Gentile, uh, that when the Messiah would come, uh, He would cleanse the temple of Gentiles. Actually, what we see our Lord doing is cleansing the temple for Gentiles. 
And he calls out the religious leaders of that day and he makes them pay for their hypocrisy. In fact, it's very clear they became so upset over it. It says there in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him and all the crowd. They didn't know what to make of all of this. They were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. John Piper in his very fine book, Bloodlines, Race, cross, and the Christian says, and I quote, Over and over, Jesus shows that the people of God will no longer be defined in an ethnic way. The new people that he is calling into existence is defined not by race or ethnicity or political ties, but by producing the fruit of the kingdom of God. This will mean, I love this, a new global family made up of believers in Christ from every ethnic group of the planet. And it will mean that those who love that vision will work toward local manifestations of that ethnic diversity. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism, globally and locally. Not color, but faith in Christ is the mark of the kingdom. But, it is a mighty long journey, and the price is high. Jesus was on the Calvary Road every step of the way. He knew what it would finally cost him. It would cost him his life, but his heart was in it to the very end. And God will indeed condemn that which promises one thing but delivers another. Finally, Jesus will challenge us to believe in God, but knows doubt is an ever-present danger. Andrew Murray was a wonderful missionary in South Africa, ministered there for more than 60 years. He wrote more than 240 books, many, of course, magnificent works on prayer, and he said this, and I quote, Christ actually meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work, and the neglect of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses in Christian and heathen countries. The power of the church to truly bless rests on intercession, asking and receiving heavenly gifts to carry those to men. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, and it's dead. It has withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it has withered. And let me just say again that any sentimental feelings toward a fig tree is badly misplaced and says more about our sloppy way of thinking than it does real values and that which matters. Remember, God said to Jonah, you should weep over lost people, not a plant. And I think God would say to us, we should weep over a dead temple and not a dead tree. And so he sees that it has withered and he says, look, the tree is gone. And Jesus responds as he often does in a way that you don't expect. But I think it does fit contextually. He simply says very straightforwardly and pointedly, have faith in God. Don't have faith in a religious institution. 
Don't have faith in something that may look really cool on the outside but be full of dead men's bones on the inside. No, no. Ultimately, your faith is not in some physical object, but your faith is in a wonderful spiritual Father. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, and he gives us a wonderful lesson of how faith should be wedded to prayer. I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, and perhaps he was looking either at the Mount of Olivet or maybe the Mount of which Jew Jerusalem and the temple was located, we don't know, but using that as an illustration and giving us a hyperbolic statement, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done to him. Now, of course, we know that the Bible speaks elsewhere of it being done for the purpose of bringing glory to God and fulfilling His will. And so don't get the idea that God is now some genie in a bottle obligated to grant you whatever you wish. I like what one man said, that believing prayer is a passionate pursuit to see God's plans accomplished in us. In other words, we're more concerned about God's will than our will. And that means that when we pray in this kind of a way, To quote David Garland, we may receive answers we do not want, find things we're not looking for, and have doors opened and closed we do not expect. And so because he is challenging us now to be the house of prayer, the the temple of the living God that others might be attracted to see that he is indeed the Savior of all nations, he says then in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, there's the the linguistic connection back to house of prayer in verse 17. Believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And since we're talking about prayer, just one final word that perhaps we all need to hear. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. When two of my sons returned from the international mission field, both of them said they picked up on something that disturbed them. Now, you need to understand that both of them had served in Muslim context. And they had grown to love Muslims. And they came back home and they said, Dad, you know, when we move around and talk to certain people in the church, it seems to me that there's a lot of hatred over here toward Muslims. In fact, it seems to us that some people actually take delight in the thought of Muslims dying and going to hell rather than Muslims coming to Christ and being saved. And, and I understand how the passions can flow uh, as a result of 9-11. And I can understand how a lost man or woman might feel hatred toward those that are connected with that kind of activity. But Christians we could actually find in our hearts hatred and and joy at the thought of their damnation, persons for whom Christ died, persons for whom He shed His precious blood. By God's sovereign grace, don't ever forget, you happen to be born here and not there. You had no say-so about where you showed up. That was all a sovereign act of a sovereign God. And therefore, when it comes to reaching out to those that have harmed us and hurt us, can you forgive them? Can you forgive them and then get past that hurt that you might indeed direct them to the Savior for all nations? I love what missionary C.T. Studd said. He was a wonderful missionary. He died in the Congo and was buried there. 
He was an all-star cricket player, member of the Cambridge Seven, and a multi-millionaire at the death of his father. And within a matter of months, he gave every single dime of it away. He actually saved about $17,000, which was a massive amount of money in the late 1800s for his bride. His bride said, are we not to be like the rich young ruler? and be obedient and give it all away. And she took the $17,000 gift her husband gave her as a wedding gift and also gave it to the cause of missions as well. C.T. Studd said this, and I close, Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within one yard of hell. Now, that is a great place to plant a temple. That is a great place to plant a life which has a sign reading over the top that says, A Savior for all nations. Come on in, all are welcomed, none will be turned away. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are a magnificent Savior who has indeed constructed a temple for all nations. The, the perfect temple is the Lord Jesus. But we as your temple, as the body of Christ, the church, and we as your temple, individual believers... We need to be likewise a place where all the nations can come and have a conversation with God, which is what prayer is. And they, Lord, ought to be attracted to your glory and your goodness by our testimony. And when they get there, they find out we're not a show. They find out that we're not fruitless. But they find out that indeed they can have an encounter with the one true and living God through us, your temple, your body. And so, Lord, may we indeed, as a people called Southern Baptists, indeed proclaim boldly, clearly, and without apology, we have a Savior for all nations. All are welcomed. Come on in. None will be turned away. We ask and pray this in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.